1: M. I. P. With Massimella Matfumo. Mark Thompson. Make it kind. Get woke.
2: God bless you. Get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. tomorrow is the big day. The Mass Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington. The culmination of the Poor People's Campaign. It's going to be streaming live. It's a digital gathering. 10 a.m. tomorrow, June 20th. 6 p.m. June 20th. It'll re-air and then at 6 p.m. again on June 21st. On Sunday you can register at june2020.org Uh, But get up bright and early with us in the morning and join us at 10 a.m. for the Mass Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington. And so uh, right now we're gonna have the the last of our daily installments of personal stories from the Poor People's Campaign. To hear what some of these people have had to go through uh, is incredible. So we're gonna share one more with you today on the eve of tomorrow's Mass Poor People's Assembly. Here today we have India from Dermot, Arkansas. Here's India from Dermot, Arkansas.
1: My name is India and I'm a 38 year old mother of five. Wife, teacher, nonprofit founder and community advocate from a small town, rural town of Dermot, Arkansas. In in 2017, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette released an article that said the rights of renters in Arkansas can be counted on one hand even if that hand is missing a couple of fingers. This was not an understatement. I've experienced the devastating impact firsthand for 10 years. Arkansas is the only state in the U.S. where landlords do not have an obligation to provide a habitable dwelling place. Arkansas is the only state in the U.S. where landlords are not required to make home repairs, so they often refuse. I've woken up in the morning to use the restroom, and when I flushed the toilet, feces came out of the flossing, straight into the tub. When this happened, I had to hurry up and clean it, because this is the same tub that my children need to get ready for school in every morning you think that this could only happen once, but this was my experience in not one, not two, but three different homes I rented that were owned by three different landlords. I also faced unwanted, inappropriate sexual advances from a landlord, only to have him come into my home with his key unannounced to make unnecessary repairs while leaving the repairs that we truly needed untouched. These are just a few of the things Arkansas renters endure. And the global coronavirus pandemic, Arkansas renters are even more susceptible to the predatory landlords, because we must stay in our homes. These dangerous, unempathetic practices are part of a system that has been set up by the privileged and wealthy, against and to the detriment of me, and all of the working class poor people. But what they did not count on was us. Us galvanizing our collectives. Us drawing strength from those who came before us. Us unifying, standing shoulder to shoulder, empowering each other. Us loving to get in good trouble. And us being that new and unsettling force who will not stop until we have safe housing for all people and for future future generations to come. Forward together, not one step back.
2: So India of Dermot, Arkansas. And um, that's her story. Uh, The last of our installments in Poor People's Campaign Personal Stories, tomorrow, the big day, 10 a.m. Eastern, June 2020. Dot O-R-G. Get registered and tune in to see uh, live the Mass. Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington. <music> Ladies and gentlemen, it's Juneteenth. And in thinking of who we chat with today, I wanted to bring someone back on the show who in the past has served the role on the show as historian, but that was his calling. He graduated from South Carolina State in 1962 with his BS degree in history. And he was a social studies teacher. Uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, Once a history professor, always a history professor. We all know him most now as the representative from South Carolina, the first to be elected since Reconstruction to Congress, the first African-American. And he also is the House Majority Whip. But The hat he's wearing today, as I said, is history professor, as we recognize Juneteenth. The Honorable James Clyburn joins us once again on Make It Plain. Good to see you, Doctor, how are you?
3: I'm doing good, Uh, thank you so much for having me back.
2: Yes, sir, you know, I I want you, I want this to be your classroom. And, you know, obviously a lot of people are talking about Juneteenth, even folk who've never known about it before. It's popular. Uh, this year uh, for good reasons and bad, obviously for all the things that we've been facing this year in this pandemic and police-demic. But from your perspective as a history professor, from those who don't don't know and from you being a teacher in the classes you taught, talk to us about Juneteenth and, and what you've imparted to your students over the years.
3: Well, thank you once again for having me. You know, the thing that I like most uh, to talk about when it comes to Juneteenth is its this origin. As most of us are aware, uh, the Emancipation Proclamations, and I'm putting the S on that because people seem not to realize there are two. One that freed uh blacks in the District of Columbia. And there was a second one uh, written in 1862 but uh, made to be effective uh, January 1, 1863. So Abraham Lincoln signed two Emancipation Proclamations uh, freeing slaves. Now, the f- second one effective January 1, 1863 s- freed blacks in the former slave states. Uh, I know we're being the big technical here, but that's what it did. It meant that if you were held in slavery in any other state, uh, not a slave state, you were still not free. That's why we had to have the 13th Amendment. And those people who may have watched the movie Lincoln, uh, you saw that the big battle, that movie was about the battle of getting the 13th Amendment. Abraham Lincoln knew exactly what he was doing. He did everything he could to get the 13th Amendment uh, passed. He knew two things. First, he had not freed all Blacks. And he knew, secondly, that the moment he stepped out of office, the executive order. You see, the Emancipation Proclamation was not legislation passed by Congress. It was an executive order by the President of the United States. Uh, executive orders are very powerful. A lot of people don't realize they're armed services were integrated by an executive order by Harry Truman in 1948. So, but executive orders die with the president. The next president, unless he or she renews it, he will not be operative. So here we are, January 1, 1863, all blacks in the former slave states of which Texas was one were free except for the fact that it was not communicated to all Blacks. So Juneteenth comes about because it was on June 19, 1865,
4: that General Granger went to Galveston, Texas, to inform the
3: slaves there that they were free. Count it up. January 1, 1863 is when the Emancipation Proclamation uh, became effective and Blacks in Texas were free, except nobody communicated it to them. And they didn't know. So I like to talk about Juneteenth as being uh, an example of the importance of communicating. So if a thing happened, you know, there's all the uh, today that they use in law schools a lot. If a tree falls in the woods and nobody is there to hear it, does it make a sound? That's the case. So if blacks were freed and nobody told them, do they have any freedom? Mm-hmm. And so that's what Juneteenth is all
4: about. That's the day that General Granger
3: freed the blacks in Gavison, Texas.
2: Yes, sir, yes, sir. So now, just to go back now, January, the second Emancipation Proclamation went into effect January 1st, 1863. That's correct. What year was the 13th Amendment passed and ratified?
3: Oh, I was afraid you were gonna ask me that question. Uh, if G.K. Butterfield were here for me, he would spike me <laughs> if not remember it. It's so funny about that because G.K. Butterfield loves to uh, uh, talk about uh, who ratified the 13th Amendment because, you know, these amendments have to be ratified uh, state by state. Uh, and so the date that it passed and the date it became effective, there's a long distance between the date that Congress approved the 13th Amendment and the last state to ratify and uh, North Carolina played a critical role in that. I don't know if they were the last state or the first state uh to ratify the 13th amendment, but um, I don't remember uh the year uh at the moment.
2: Well, I, so I'm looking at it. It is it, it, what I thought it was. I just wanted to be sure it was in uh, 1865. So, uh, um, on well, on the Jan-
3: members ratified before June 10th is what you're telling me.
2: So the 13th Amendment passed the House of Representatives on January 31st, 1865. So the so right right. So, so the final the final ratification um, was not until um, December 6th. Of 1865, okay. But um, so in between there is when Juneteenth happened. But obviously, uh, this those who were enslaved in Texas, I think that's the point. Neither knew about 1863 or or January of 1865. So they didn't know about the the, the second proclamation, and they didn't know about the first passage of the act. Even before it was ratified, I don't know when Texas um, actually ratified, ratified the Thirteenth Amendment. Uh, uh, I, I do know that Mississippi just ratified it a few years ago. Lord have mercy! Uh, <laughs> you know,
3: there are some, <laughs> there are some uh, who uh, claim that South Carolina never did. Uh, there is this theory that's going around. I've never really verified this, and I've tried uh, to find out whether or not it's true, uh, that what South Carolina technically did was to incorporate the wording of the 13th Amendment into the South Carolina Constitution's Fifth Amendment. uh, And when they adopted their own Fifth Amendment as a constitution, uh, they prevailed upon uh, the federal government to recognize that as having been uh, accepting the 13th Amendment. I, I've, I've never been able to uh, determine that to really be true, uh, but uh, that's what some of the uh, uh, experts uh, say. You know, I just studied history, I love history. Yes, I used sir. to teach it. Um, I don't call myself a historian by any, by any means.
2: Well, okay, so uh, Texas actually itself did not ratify the ter- 13th Amendment until February of, 1870. I mean, there was enough it to be to be ratified so, by the other states, but Texas itself well, didn't ratify it.
3: Well, remember, that every state does not have to. Right,
2: right, right. Uh, yeah, you
3: know, if, if, if uh, what is two thirds?
2: Yes, uh, yeah. two thirds. And so there, and there were fewer states uh, back then.
3: Still, with, that's right.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, at, you you have taught history. For so long, and you've known our history. When did you first come to know about Juneteenth and its importance? I mean, I know it's very popular now. It's very popular yeah. in, in the midst of, but I remember when folk never he- even heard of it. When and did was, you when, when did you first realize its importance?
3: I was a college student. Okay. Before I knew about Juneteenth, um, and, and um, really, uh, when I first uh, learn about Juneteenth. Uh, I thought that it was June nineteenth, eighteen sixty-three. Mm. It was not until I started doing the research, and I found out uh, that no, uh, it was not the June nineteenth, eighteen sixty-five. Uh, I thought they got the word six months later. No, they got the word uh, two years and six months later, thirty months.
2: Wow! Wow! Now, what I'm also looking at too, and again, I don't know how accurate this is, but there's something here that says, South Carolina ratified in November of 1865.
5: Right.
3: Yeah. That, that's what I'm saying. Um, uh, the, the question is, did South Carolina take a direct vote on the ratification mm-hmm. or did they uh, incorporate the rati- the, the, that language into the state's constitution. If I think it's the fifth amendment to the state constitution, whether or not that was considered to be ratification. But that is the thing that there's, there's debate on. Now, uh, having not been present, uh, I don't know exactly uh, what, how technical that was. But you know, uh, people get, especially uh, when we have these false, uh, doctrines uh of history uh uh, people get real touchy about whether not uh to vote on something directly we still do that Uh, in in the in the college a lot of times uh things are incorporated uh in the in the piece of legislation uh, uh that is allowed to become law without having to have a direct vote on it uh so people can maintain plausible deniability (laughs) <laughs> so I suspect a lot of uh, South Carolinians did not want it ever uh, it to be said that they voted uh, for ratification and maybe it was something like that. I don't know, I've never gotten that deep into it.
2: So I'm curious that we're looking at 1865 and I know you know this history well too, uh, how, how long or how close to 1865 was South Carolina's uh, congressional delegation that looked like us, that, that represented us. And- oh. Well, uh, um,
3: the first African-American to be elected to Congress uh, was from South Carolina. Right. Now, let me, let's get this history right. Okay. The first African-American elected to Congress was from South Carolina, Joseph Reining. Now, that was 1870, December in a special election, Mm -hmm. December 1870. So come December 2020, we're gonna celebrate the 150th anniversary of the first black person being elected to Congress. And we're gonna have a big ceremony there uh, in the Capitol. We're gonna have a big um, display uh, dedicated to him. And I am hopeful that I get it done by then. There is a room. On the first floor uh, that I'm trying to get named in honor of Joseph Rennie, who was originally from Georgetown, South Carolina, uh, but having gone to Bermuda, uh running away from slavery, came back to this country after Emancipation Proclamation and lived in Charleston when he came back. Now, the reason I emphasize the election part is because back then. Uh, there were two black United States senators uh, uh, now, uh, from, one from Louisiana, uh, one from Mississippi. Uh, and of course, uh, they were not elected, popularly elected. They were elected by the Senate of their state right. and sent to Washington uh, to represent And, and that's them. how they
2: did it back then, just to be clear. Did that's we, right. They, they hadn't started popular election of senators yet.
3: That's exactly right.
2: Mm-hmm. And and back then, too, that was possible because you had state legislatures during Reconstruction where we as African-Americans had won seats.
3: Oh, hell, had a lot of seats. In fact, in South Carolina, two thirds of the General Assembly in South Carolina was Black. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of the House of Representatives was Black. Uh, but we never had a majority in the state Senate, uh, but in the state House of Representatives, it was majority black. And um, if my memory serves on this, uh, we had four Congress people uh, and three of them were black.
5: Right, uh, including,
2: uh, I think, um, uh, Robert Elliott. Yes, and Robert Elliott, Robert-
3: who was the uh, Speaker of the State House of Representatives uh, here in South Carolina, Uh, but he went on to Congress. Uh, In fact, uh, you know, uh, it's technically Reconstruction lasts only 12 years. Yeah. Uh, We we often refer to that period uh, all the way up to the 1890s as being the Reconstruction period. Uh, The fact of the matter is Reconstruction lasts from 18, Sixty-five. uh and six uh, was over in 1877. Uh, yeah. So Reconstruction came to end in 1877, uh, largely on legislation being passed. One was uh, a Supreme Court decision in 1872 um, uh, involving Louisiana, uh, a uh case, and then the President versus mm-hmm. Ferguson case uh, caught, put in law uh, separate but equal uh, that was about 1896 um that case uh and, and it was that's the period is when that case was decided that people tended to uh, say this was the ending uh, of reconstruction and, and the beginning of separate but equal no uh, jim crow uh started after around 1877 and lasted all the way through uh, that particular period uh uh, 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 1890s. So George Washington Murray, um, left Congress. He was from South Carolina in 1897. The last black to serve in Congress until the 1930s, uh, was, uh, uh, George White, um, uh, from North Carolina mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: He left in 1901. And that's the last black to serve until the 1930s uh, when, uh, what's this, uh, the priest, uh, Oscar Della priest uh, from yeah, Illinois.
2: Yeah, yeah. So this is fascinating. So uh, of the members, so there was a Richard Kane. Yes. From South Carolina. He served in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate.
3: He was a uh, minister. In fact, Kane uh, was uh, an AME, uh, my member so he may have been Bishop.
2: Uh, yeah, I believe he was, uh, uh, he was, uh, yeah, he was an AME church. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe he was a, a Bishop. That is, that is correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, in South Carolina also, um, we mentioned Robert Elliott, uh, who was in Congress. There was, and as really, as I'm looking at all the representatives, there was Robert Smalls, uh, who was a state senator, but also a member of Congress.
3: Yeah, he stated uh, Robert Smalls, uh, to me, is the most consequential South Carolinian to ever live.
5: Hmm, okay.
3: And I, 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 I can make that case. Now, Sweet. you know, there are a lot of people who will talk about John C. Calhoun. Uh, they may even talk about the Strom Thurmond and uh, a bunch of people, but I can make the case. That Robert Smalls uh, was the most consequential South Carolinian
4: ever. And I believe mm. that very strongly.
2: Well, well tell, tell us about that because I want people to hear that history. Make, make the case if you would.
3: Well, Robert Smalls was born in slavery. Mm-hmm. Born in Beaufort, South Carolina. Um, his mother uh, was, was a slave. Uh, they were uh, in the possession uh, of the McGee family. Um, And Robert Smalls, when he was only 12 years old, uh, McGee, John McGee, I believe was his first name, uh, McGee started to fall on hard times. Things were not going well for him. He then sent Robert Smalls uh, to Charleston uh, to work on the waterfront. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was only 12, Uh, he worked on the waterfront and under the deal back then, slaves could be farmed out and whatever income they made went back to the master. So Robert Smalls was working the Charleston waterfront and the money was going to uh, his master, John McGee, back in Buford. Well, Robert Smalls, true to the book that was written by uh, Andrew... um, Billingsley, a former president of Morgan State. Uh, Andrew Billingsley came down to South Carolina uh, and spent two or three years here. Uh, And the whole time he was here uh, as a professor over at the University of South Carolina, he did research and ended up writing a book on Robert Smalls. And the book is entitled, Yearning to Breathe Free. Mm -hmm. And that's an apt description of Robert Smalls. Mm -hmm. While Robert Smalls was working
4: there on the waterfront, he was yearning to be a free man. He started studying the currents. He was observant
3: of the captain of the ship. Uh, The ship was named the planter. And he was working on that ship observing
4: how the captain ran the ship, learning how the currents of
3: the Charleston Harbor, he was listening to the whistles as the uh, captain used the whistles to signal certain things uh, for the ship to pass. Uh, And he was watching the habits of the captain and everybody working
4: there. So Robert Smalls, after he thought
3: he had learned enough, uh, one night, he noticed that the captain and everybody on the ship, they weren't paying attention to them. They were slaves and he thought ignorant. Uh, and so uh, like every Friday night or Saturday night, I don't remember which one it was, but on the weekend, they would go into town, get, leave the ship to the slaves. They would all go into town and um, participate in whatever activities, uh, most of which was a lot of drinking. But one night
4: <clears throat> when they all went to town, left nobody on the ship but the slaves, Robert Smalls uh, absconded the planter. And he planned it well. Uh everybody on board wouldn't go with him but everybody who wanted to go he took them with him and because he knew what whistles sounds to make as he passed fort sumter he pulled the whistles and was waved through because the people at fort sumter
3: who was supposed to be guarding the harbor Thought the ship was being manned by the captain, and gave it safe passage because he knew the currents, he knew exactly how to get that ship out of the Charleston Harbor. He stopped up in the north, what's now North Charleston, picked up his wife, children, and a few more friends, and went on to deliver that ship to the Union soldiers, and. Uh, And to reward him, he was given $1,500 in cash and his freedom. And Robert Smalls turned that $1,500 into great wealth. And he became um, a, a, a member of Congress. Now, before he became a member of the House of Representatives here and Congress, Robert Smalls, in the company of a Presbyterian minister, now, his freedom, it was like 1862 in mm-hmm. March the spring of 1862 when he did this. That following August,
4: he, in the company of a Presbyterian minister, went to Washington
3: and sat down with Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. Wow. Abraham Lincoln, you may recall, was a big advocate for black folks uh, being inducted into the army to fight for their own freedom. On the Union side, they were not allowed to do so until it looked like the North
4: might lose the war mm-hmm. and they needed manpower. So when they made the case, Abraham Lincoln entertained Frederick Douglass and Robert Smalls, they
3: made the case for blacks going into the army to fight for their own freedom. Mm. Robert Smalls was authorized to come back to South Carolina and recruit blacks to serve in the army. He was authorized to get up to 40,000 black troops, which he did. Mm. Think about that.
5: Wow.
3: He came back to South Carolina, recruited up to 40,000. Uh, black people to fight for their own freedoms. He continued to work on that ship because he was inducted into the army. Because even back then, because he didn't know how to read and write, he was not allowed to go into the navy. But he was inducted into the army, and then the army assigned him to the naval ship to the navy, mm. and he. Uh, helped them win the war by uh, knowing the currents in the Charleston Harbor, and then, of course, uh, 40,000 troops. And a lot of historians say that's what made the difference in winning the war, those 40,000 Black people uh, that were inducted uh, into the army by Robert Smalls. Now, what's more consequential than that? Right. Now, he follows all of that by getting elected to the uh, South Carolina legislature, where he served for 10 years.
4: He followed that by getting elected to the United States Congress, where
3: he served another 10 years. Uh, The backdrop to all of this, Robert Smalls was a member of the Constitutional Convention of 1868, I believe it was, or 66. That is when, remember, the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863, then Sarkozy had this constitutional convention uh, to figure out how uh, all this is going to get done. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, he was a member of that convention. Robert Small was also a member of the 1895 constitutional convention. Now, what is so amazing about this, he got his freedom.
4: Codified in eight, in 1868
3: convention. He got his freedom taken away from him in the 1895 convention. Mm. According to my research, he was one uh, of uh, only two people uh, who went to both conventions.
5: Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's an incredible story. Well,
3: there's one other story I want to tell you about Robert Smalls. Please. So, Robert Smalls goes back to Buford.
4: By this time, John McGee was really in bad shape. Uh, Lost all of his wealth. Mm -hmm. His wife took ill. Mm -hmm. Robert Smalls bought the house that he was a slave in and brought the widow of McGee into that home and took care of her
2: till she died. Hmm. Wow. That's something else. Yeah, no, I agree with you. He, he, of of all the folk, he was pretty, he was definitely the most consequential. Um, I'm just going to lift up a couple other names before we go since we're on South Carolina. Alonzo Ranzier, <laughs> Uh He was in Congress. And he was also- Ranzier. Ranzier. He was also Lieutenant Governor of South Carolina from December 1870 to December 1872. So you all had a black Lieutenant Governor even then. And and folks, this is the point. This was the power of Reconstruction. There were thousands of black elected officials and that's why they took it away because we were cleaning up. And lastly, Jonathan Wright, State Senator and First Black Associate Justice of the South Carolina Supreme Court 1870 to 1877. Things that, you know, would be unheard of today, so to speak, in terms of the way, but that's that's where we were. And that's what yeah. we were.
3: But Well, you know, we had a second Lieutenant Governor too, uh, R.J. Gleaves, I believe was his name, Okay. Uh, and Secretary of State, uh, State Treasurer. There was a Black State Treasurer. Uh, there's an interesting story about him, um, uh, Cardoza,
2: Cardozo, yeah, Francis Lewis Cardoza, yeah.
3: Francis Lewis Cardoza the state treasurer. A lot of people don't know it, but Cardoza High School in Washington, D.C. was right. named for Francis uh, Cardoza, who escaped from South Carolina. I say escaped because when they were, uh, you know, way in Hampton, who people are now uh, talking a little bit about. And I think uh, we're going to have some adjustments made to South Carolina history. And Pitchfork Ben Tillman, uh, all of these people, they drove black people out of South Carolina mm-hmm. uh, to keep them from holding them office uh, because their numbers were too big. Uh, and so uh, they, Francis Cardoso left and went to Washington, D.C. Very smart guy, highly educated. And he uh, kind of became one of the top educators in mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. And subsequently, uh, Cardoza High School was built and named in his honor. Yes, now, a lot of people think that, that uh, Cardoza High School was named uh, for a former associate justice of the Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, but no, it was um, Francis Louis Cardozo.
2: Yeah, a lot of people do think that, you know. Uh, they think it was named after Benjamin, but it was named after Francis Louis. You're absolutely right. Right, right. Uh, this is what we wanted. We wanted uh, to folks to hear you flex that history muscle of yours. <laughs> and folks, it's important because, um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Congressman Clyburn is continuing in a tradition in terms of, of of Black South Carolinians who struggled and fought their way to represent their community, and that struggle's not over. Uh, so, to me, he's a direct link. Um to that history that he's just shared with us and we are more than thankful to that Congressman I know you don't call yourself a historian but, but you've taught him, so professor thank you thank you <laughs> it's a Appreciate pleasure being here happy Juneteenth to you
3: same to you my man
2: alright alright God you are our refuge send our ancestors to guard our doors cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies heal bless and protect everyone listening and their loved ones thank you for listening to make it plain and get woke remember to listen like and subscribe on apple podcast spotify and wherever you get your podcast if all minds are clear it has been made plain